Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. I believe that people tend to act most of the time according to their self-understanding. That is to say that whatever it is that you think you are, that's probably how you are most likely to act. Now, virtually every school teacher knows this, and that's why they're very careful to not uh, call kids dummies, to not uh, call them troublemakers, because they know that if they begin to shape that kid's understanding of himself or herself so that the kid thinks, I'm incapable, or the kid thinks, I'm the guy who always gets the behavior wrong, they know that kids turn out like that. Because whatever it is that we think we are, that is how we are most likely to act on a consistent basis. Last Sunday, I began that series of sermons about our identity as a people who are part of the Church of the Nazarene. Simply put, our identity is summed up by three core values. We are a Christian church, we are a holiness church, and we are a missional church. I call myself a a Nazarene Christian because I believe that those three statements express a biblically well-informed understanding of the Christian faith. And so long as this denomination holds to all of those truths, I can be a Nazarene. The day that it lets go of any one of them is the day that I head elsewhere, grateful to be a Christian still. Last week, we began by exploring what it really means to be authentically Christian. And that word Christian is so big, it's hard to get handles on because it can be defined sociologically, it can be defined historically, it can be defined theologically. Oh, we don't have time for all of that. So we decided that we would just take a look at the scriptures and see what it is that they teach us about what it means to be Christian. And we looked especially at how Paul boiled it down for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, "Uh, what I received from Jesus, I passed on to you as of first importance. And he said, here are the first most important things about Christianity. Number one, that Christ died for our sins. Number two, that he was buried. Number three, he was raised from the dead. And number four, he appeared to many to prove his resurrection. The Church of the Nazarene finds itself right in the middle of that historic stream of Christianity. And it adheres absolutely to these beliefs. If you were to ask me, what's the most important thing to know about this denomination, my answer would be that we are Christians. The truth is, and always shall be, that we're Christians first, Nazarene, a far distant second. That's true of me as a pastor. It's true of this as a congregation, period. Right? Nod your heads like this, because it really does need to be true. Still, I make no apologies for identifying myself as a Nazarene Christian. So why am I spending three weeks talking about denominational things? I mean, isn't there a risk in in spending so much time talking about all this denominational stuff? Yes, there are risks, a number of them. The first one is the risk of offending people with denominational talk of any kind, and you offend people and they leave. That's a risk. The second is the risk of people finding out that they really don't believe what we believe, and because of that, they go to church elsewhere. That's a risk. The third risk is the risk of being ignorant of who we really are as a people, and that would paralyze us in our mission. And the truth is, the third risk is the only one that I can't live with. It's not that I want people to go elsewhere. It's just that it is the case that we are a part of a denomination. We're not going to change that. It is the case that we believe the things that I talked about last week, that I will talk about this week, and we'll talk about next week. And I think it's important to go to a church that believes what you believe. Well, I'm not saying, hey, there's the door if you don't like it. 
I'm just saying that I can live with it when people say, God bless you, but there's a different flavor of Christianity that meshes with our hearts. You, you hear what I'm saying? Okay. But I can't live with the notion that we just stumble around doing nothing for the sake of the kingdom because we don't know who we are and we can't figure out which direction to go. So it's the third risk that I end up isolating and saying it makes it worth it to talk about denominational things for just a little bit. We clear on these matters? Do you, do you understand and believe that I'm, I'm really not trying to be divisive in the body of Christ? I'm, I'm really not trying to, to talk in elitist fashion like the Church of the Nazarene's the best thing in the universe because we're just a part of, of Christ's worldwide church. If you, as long as you do this, or enough of you do this, then, then we can move on. Okay. Today, I want to focus on our second core value. It asserts that we are a holiness church, and I know as soon as I say the word holiness, there are people going, dude, ah, phew, I, mm, that's, I, if, is, that, is that basically what you've been saying to yourself? Uh, if he says that I have to be holy, I might have to find another church, because I know me. What in the world does that word holiness mean? The word holiness comes to us from the Old Testament. At the time of the giving of the Ten Commandments, the nation of Israel was entering into some sort of formal relationship with God. And the fact that they were the people of God, that they belonged to him, implied that they were supposed to live in a way that clearly identified them as the people of God. Because the people of the nation surrounding them belonged to their gods and acted in ways that were consistent with the behaviors of their gods. Sorry, people who are sensitive, but here's the, the way that this goes. The neighboring nations, because of who their gods were, as part of their worship, participated in child sacrifice and bestiality because they were like their gods. It became very important for the people of this God, of our God, to be associated with him more than merely in name. When Israel was organized as a nation then, God gave them some distinctive religious practices that would reveal what kind of God he is and that would therefore identify Israel as his people. And I know that any one of those stories that you read in the Old Testament, any one of those actions that God took, taken by itself, those things can be scary and confusing and uh, just frankly quite weird. But when you take them as a whole, the religion that we see in the Old Testament revealed a God who was good, a God who acted lovingly toward humans, and it revealed a God who deeply, deeply desires to have relationship with the people that he has created. Part of that religion involved worshiping in a designated facility. While Israel lived as a nomadic people for one period of their nation's history, that facility was a very large tent that they would put up, worship in, take down, and pack to the next camp. It was called the tabernacle. The people had built the tabernacle according to some God-given specifications, and they had crafted all kinds of instruments and furniture and vessels that would be used in religious services that took place exclusively inside that tent. The passage that we're going to read here in just a few seconds tells what they were supposed to do after they built the tabernacle, the furniture, the instruments, the vessels, all of that stuff. Remember, this text that we're going to read tells us about this religion. And this religion tells us some things about the God that it revolves around. 
Stand with me, please, if you would, in honor of the reading of God's Word. Lord, I'm grateful for this book because it, it, it makes it possible for us to know, to understand. We don't have to stumble around in darkness wondering what you're like, wondering what we ought to be like, wondering how to approach you. Thank you for giving us light from these pages. Shine the light from the pages into our hearts and minds now, we pray in your name. Amen. All right. Hang on with me because this text is not going to seem like it matters at all when we first read it, okay? Because it's like reading a recipe book. Then the Lord said to Moses, collect choice spices, 12 and a half pounds of pure myrrh, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cinnamon, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant calamus, 12 and a half pounds of cassia, as measured by the weight of the sanctuary shekel. Also get one gallon of olive oil. Like a skilled incense maker, blend these ingredients to make a holy anointing oil. Use this sacred oil to anoint the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, a piece of furniture, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and all its accessories, the incense altar, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and the wash basin with its stand. Consecrate them to make them absolutely holy. After this, whatever touches them will also become holy. I'm going to just pause for a minute. Isn't it interesting that it doesn't say if anything else touches them, the altar becomes impure? Anything that touches these holy things becomes holy. Just chew on that. Anoint Aaron and his sons also, consecrating them to serve me as priests. And say to the people of Israel, this holy anointing oil is reserved for me from generation to generation. It must never be used to anoint anyone else, and you must never make any blend like it for yourselves. It's holy, and you must treat it as holy. Anyone who makes a blend like it or anoints someone other than a priest will be cut off from the community. Crazy as it is, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Seems like an awful big fuss to make about a tent and some furniture and a bottle of perfume, doesn't it? Tells us that there must have been some very important idea behind these objects and and the religious things that they were going to be used for. In fact, this passage tells us quite a bit about holiness, which is the real point of the sermon this morning. It tells us that the essential idea of holiness, the most basic form of that word, means being set apart. Verses 32 and 33, I think, are very direct. They came as an order to the people. They were to set this particular oil apart from all of the others and use it only for the work that God designated. The oil wasn't supposed to be used as aftershave, cologne, or perfume, though there was nothing inherently wrong with those things. Not that those things were sinful, it's just that this oil wasn't for that. It was for one purpose only. It didn't have a mixed purpose, not part sacred, part secular. It was set apart for God's purposes only. The oil and the other items that were mentioned were then put into the tabernacle and they were used for tabernacle purposes only. The lampstand was never borrowed for family reunions. We loan tables, all kinds of stuff out here. You could not come and get the lampstand from the tabernacle for the big pig roast at your place, okay? The tabernacle, we have all kinds of 
community groups that use this building and the one across the street, and that excites me. I think we're a great host to this community. But the tabernacle never doubled as, say, the VFW hall on Thursdays. It wasn't allowed. These things, you see, had entered into religious service, and they were never, ever, 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 ever going to be used for anything else. And to make sure that the people understood how God now viewed these things, how special these set-apart things were in the eyes of God, he attached a very severe penalty for anyone who then took that oil and used it for anything other than God's work. They would be, the scripture said, cut off from his people. Okay, it's important that you get this. Uh, So I need some help. KJ, can you come up here and help me? Right um, behind this door over here, there is a large block of wood, and I want you to bring it and put it um, somewhere that I'm not going to trip on it. Let's put it right here, okay? Yes, right behind that door, yep. That's the one right there. Just bring it right out here. Oh, but without the microphone stand. It does make a good microphone stand stand, though, doesn't it? Yeah. It's a chunk. Yeah, just right there. Right there would be good. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Now, um, I also need you, you just became the volunteer from the audience, okay? First you were my roadie, now you're my volunteer, okay? Um, The text said that if anybody used the oil for anything other than what God said, he was to be cut off from his people. They got to get the point of cut off, okay? So what I want you to do is I want you to put your hand right here, just like this, okay? Not your neck, your hand. Okay. Just, yeah, you can, you can sit. It's, it'll probably be better if you sit. <laughs> and then for them to get the point of cut off, I mean, I guess you, I'll give you your choice of knuckle, right? But, uh, yeah, I just cut it off. All right. All right, now hang with me here. This is really a trust game, okay? You ready? <laughs> I'm just kidding. No. Take your hand off of there. That is not safe. But, but, but cut off goes something like this. KJ, you better get out of the way because this could get messy. Um, I, yes, ladies and gentlemen, KJ. Um, okay, this is just a little uh, limb that I cut off of a tree out there today, but it's something like this. Or like that. You guys getting the point of cut off? Here's what happens. I cut this off of a little tree just right over there by the lunchbox earlier today. It was beautiful and very much alive just two hours ago. But this thing got cut off from the source of its life. This is what you get. And tomorrow afternoon, it won't even be wilted and floppy. It will be crispy and there will be no chance of breathing life back into it. So one of my dear old professors used to always say to me, a word to the sufficiently wise is unnecessary. Well, that was just kind of a downer, wasn't it? (laughs) Be holy or God chops things off. Um, It's kind of what the Bible said. That's rather inconvenient, isn't it? The idea was this. Not that God was going to kill you, 
But then he had this group of people who were his, exclusively his, and he made promises to them, incredible things that he would do for them because they were his people. If they would set themselves apart and belong to him only, then they got in on the life and all the goodness that comes with the life. But at the point that they ceased to identify with the people of God, they would be cut off, cut off from the source of life and the blessings. And part of this was, would happen if somebody just said, ah, I don't want to be Israeli anymore. I want to be whatever version of Canaanite. But he also said there was a consequence to saying, oh, no, 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 I'm part of the people of God. I just don't do anything they do. You see, I'm my own man. I run my own show. I do it my way. But, you know, God and I have this understanding. <laughs> yeah, you do. You and God have an understanding. He said, you take these holy things and treat them like they're not. You're just not part of my people. Hmm. Hang with me. We've got to go somewhere good because right now the sermon's in a very bad place. Okay? You're right. It is the best day in church ever, isn't it? Because of a machete in church. Yeah. <laughs> that is a testimony. For those of you who don't know what testimonies are, that was it right there. Thanks, buddy. Um, I understand that because of the violence inherent in the system um, that it would be quite possible for us to just focus on, on, on this and say, oh no, holiness is something you better do or God's gonna. And, and I'm intentionally running the risk of, of, of that by leaving this thing out here where people look at severed things. But I want you to hear me. Cutting off was never the aim. Cutting off was never the goal. Cutting off was never the desire in the heart of God. What he wanted was a people who would stay connected to him, a people who would cling to him, a people who would trust him enough to follow him, to believe that God's smarter than they are and knows best how to get us through this life. Therefore, they would trust what God said and do what God said to do. This whole business was only a consequence that was intended to motivate the very most stubborn and rebellious people. But let's not focus on the consequences. Instead, let it illustrate to us how very important it is to God, this idea of being set apart and belonging exclusively to him. He said, either you belong to me or, or you don't. You in or you out. Interestingly, it seems to me, either way, through obedience or through disobedience, there was a setting apart. You were either set apart, those tabernacle things were either set apart for God or they would be set apart from God. People too. Set apart for God or set apart from God. That basic idea about the tabernacle and all of its furnishings was later transferred to people. They were either set apart for God's possession and use, they were designated holy, or they were cut off and separated from him and designated unholy. Uh, there was no room in this worldview for straddling the fence, no in between, no half in, half out. That's the basic meaning of the word holy. Set apart permanently and exclusively for God and God alone. Now, as the idea of holiness was translated from objects into the human sphere, it moved from being just this ceremonial designation to being a word that, that started to take on some ethical and, and moral ideas. 
It became understood that if a person belonged to God, that there were certain behaviors that were appropriate to that and certain behaviors that were not. And if these people then really belonged to God, they would not just say that, but they would begin to live in certain ways and would become like him at the level of character and resulting behavior. So to be holy wasn't just a designation, you belong to God, you got a tag on you, but a description. You're becoming like your God. That idea that we find in the Old Testament is pretty fully developed by the time we get to the New Testament days. Jesus taught Israel's people who were ceremonially set apart for him by that act of circumcision that they must begin, or in this case, when G, by the time Jesus was talking, they must begin again. They must resume the business of acting like they belong to God too. He went even further to say that not only must you act like God, but something has to happen in your hearts so that you really do become like him at the very core of your being. He said you can't even, Jesus said, you can't even allow your heart to cherish or deeply desire evil things. So get this progression. There's this designation, you are holy, you're set apart. Then there was imitation where the followers of God were to begin to obey and act like their God but then also a transformation where he began to work in their hearts and enable them to desire to be like him and power to become like him. Human beings are inherently religious. I mean, we make religions out of sports, exercise, diets, pastimes, family, politics, drugs, you name it. Whatever it is that we do in this life, we do it religiously because there is a religious bent in every one of us. And this faith that we celebrate, Christianity, it's been celebrated by religious practice down through the years. Religious though we are, we also have this horrible tendency. We have this tendency to become merely religious. You recognize that? You recognize that tendency in human beings? I mean all the other human beings, not you of course, but this this tendency to pursue something wholeheartedly and then after a while to just kind of pursue it and just go through the forms, go through the motions. You know, that's, that's bad for marriages. It's bad for, it's bad for your faith too. Human beings have this tendency to, to become merely religious and sadly, if you know anything about history and church history in particular, you know that there have been lengthy periods of mere religion down through Christian history. It was during one of those periods in England in the mid to late 1700s that a a great spiritual awakening took place. There was a group of men who grew so dissatisfied with their mere religion that they formed a club that said they were going to search the Bible together and see if the Bible could teach some alternative to empty religious practice. They shared this hope that people could be more than forgiven, they could be changed. Man, that resonates with my heart. They searched the scriptures. Indeed, there was an alternative. And and in those years between then and now, a number of denominations have sprung into existence that have centered themselves on the essentials of Christianity that we talked about last week, but which have chosen to emphasize an additional idea, an idea that may seem really obvious to you if you've been a Christian for a while. It's this idea that when a person chooses to become a follower of Jesus Christ, They're not only forgiven of their sins, but they're cleansed of them. In other words, we believe that when a person professes faith in Christ and asks for forgiveness, 
God does that, but he also goes to work in our hearts and lives. Not only does he forgive us, but he makes us spiritually alive on the inside and begins this revolution. He starts to change us from the inside out. The work that God wants to do in each one of us is not simply to forgive. Though he does that and loves it, he also wants to empower us to overcome the grip that sinfulness once had on our lives. And here at this church and in this denomination, we believe God can do exactly that. Contrary to all the Christian bumper stickers you've read, you know the ones that say Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven? I think what the Bible teaches is that Christians are more than forgiven. We are changed. I'm not going to mess with the word perfect right now. It annoys me too, but I know this much. The desire of God is to forgive us and also to change us. What's the change? What is it that God's trying to do? Well, the Bible has a word for it. In the New Testament, the writers referred to this change, the further work of God in a believer's life as being sanctified. Well, there's a theological word that you've probably not heard much unless you've been part of one of those denominations that I talked about that sprung up in the last couple hundred years. Um, Let me just give you a crash course on this New Testament word, and then I want to share with you just a handful of scriptures that I think clearly demonstrate that this process is God's will for each and every one of his children. In the lives of most Christ followers, we see a pattern emerging. Upon first professing faith in Christ and experiencing forgiveness from all the sins and the shame of our past, We exhibit a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of joy all centered around this newfound faith of ours. And as a result, fired up about the deal, we begin to live a new kind of life just like the Bible teaches. But after a while, it seems, almost all Christians begin to experience some kind of a struggle. There seems to be some kind of a war inside of them that's starting to drag them back toward the sins that once owned them. Part of us wanting to do what's right. Part of us wanting to do what we know is wrong. And inside of a man or a woman's heart or mind, when they recognize this war, it's alarming. It's disappointing to us because we know that the Bible teaches that we're supposed to be these completely new creatures in Christ, but we feel like we're only partly new. So we find ourselves repeatedly asking God to forgive us, but continuing to struggle with the same old sins maybe even doubting at times whether anything real happened to us way back there, doubting whether we're really Christians at all. At this point in our spiritual lives, we often become aware of the fact that sin isn't just some wrong things that we've done, but that it's the condition of the human heart. The sins come from somewhere. We sin, we find out, because we're sinners, not the other way around. We're not sinners because we sin. These things come out of our hearts. Whenever that awareness comes, whether it comes at the moment of our conversion or at some point thereafter, that just depends on the individual. I'm not going to argue that with you. Whichever is the case, at the moment that we become aware of our need for God to change our hearts from sinful dark places, into holy places, the Bible teaches that God stands ready to do exactly that. God the Holy Spirit can do more for you than simply give you a get out of hell free card. He can change you. He really can. In the New Testament book of Acts, 
Peter referred to this cleansing, this changing work of the Spirit as having our hearts purified by faith. John, Jesus' other close friend, dealt with both sides of the coin at once. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he says that God is faithful not just to forgive us our sins, the things in the past, but also to cleanse us from unrighteousness, the condition of our hearts. Well, that's a great idea, Pastor Cliff. I'd really like for all that stuff to be true. But there's a war going on inside of me. It's been going on for years. How can I know that what you're saying is true? I think that is a legitimate question. The New Testament is full of the language of holiness and sanctification. And while I don't have time today, you don't want me to take the time to develop the full context of every one of these passages, I just want to read to you a series of short passages from the New Testament and ask you, would you just consider them at face value at first? Then if you want to spend some more time, go read them. I think the best place for us to start is with the words of Jesus himself. A man's last words, when he knows they are going to be his last words, well, they tend to draw into focus his purpose for his life. If you know it's the last words you're going to get to say, you usually make them count for something, the most important thing in your estimation. These are Jesus' last recorded words that he ever spoke in prayer. It's found right before he was arrested in John chapter 17, beginning with verse 13. Listen to the words of Jesus. He's talking to the Father. He says, I'm coming to you now. But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they, his disciples, may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they're not of the world any more than I'm of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world even as I'm not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world, and for them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. This is the words of Jesus. Jesus' prayer contained a statement that his followers are no more like this world than he is. Does that reflect reality as you experience it every day? then I think we ought to change our experience of this life. That, or just go ahead and call Jesus a liar and get this thing done with. He said about his followers, they're no more like this world than I am. Jesus making stuff up? Jesus have a screw loose? Jesus not playing with a full deck? Jesus really doesn't get what it's like to live in this world? Or is he God in the flesh who spoke only the words that his father gave him? He said, my followers aren't any more like this world than I am. Hmm. He then asked the father, would you do something about it? Would you do that sanctifying work in their lives that that would make them able to follow your word, father? Is this sanctification business some kind of an add-on to the Christian faith? I mean, is it just, I don't know, Cliff, I haven't heard of this stuff much before. and It just seems, I don't know. Maybe that's okay for you and the rest of us are just going to leave it alone. I don't think it's an add-on. 
I think it's been part of the plan all along. Paul wrote to the Ephesians these words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Well, that sounds good. I want whatever that is. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. How long ago? Before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Do you hear what Jesus chose for you? Did you hear what the Father planned for you from eternity past? For you to be holy and blameless in his sight. The writer to the Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 14, wrote these words. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Peter, you remember him? The same brash, sword-fighting, lying, cowering person that we find in the Gospels? He had his heart and life changed by God's Holy Spirit. And out of that change, he later wrote these words. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 and following. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, and he quotes the Old Testament, be holy because I'm holy. Linking the, the words and ideas of sanctification, New Testament word, holiness, that Old Testament idea, demonstrating that they're functionally flip sides of the same coin, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, Greece, that they were, quote, those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. That's how he introed the letter to them. Two more passages and we'll be done. The first is from Paul to the church at Thessalonica. It's very straightforward. I believe self-explanatory. Listen to this. This is God's word from the pen of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we've already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Oh. Perhaps this morning, you've heard plenty of talk about God wanting us to be holy people. And maybe that's something that you've known or you've suspected for a very long time. But as you've listened this morning, you've just become more discouraged because you felt that war raging inside of you for a very long time. And it's not getting better. You've tried harder. You made God 10,000 promises, but the results are always mixed at best. If that's the case for you, I want to share with you some very good news also from God's Word. 
He doesn't lower the bar any in defining the holy life that God wants us to live, but he does tell us some information that we absolutely need to know. Listen to these words also from Paul to the Thessalonians, chapter 5, beginning with verse 23. He wrote, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Did you hear that? It's not up to you. This call to holiness isn't, hey, let's try to be better people. Hey, let's try harder to be better people. Let's try more consistently. Let's try more whatever, Lee. Let's just try and try and try. Instead, we have from the pen of the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this promise that the God who expects these things of us, who calls us to them, we have the promise that he will be faithful, that he will be trustworthy, that he can be counted upon to do that changing work inside of our hearts as we become aware of our need in one area of our life and surrender the control of that part of our life to him. He'll say, thank you, I'll take that, and I'll work with it. We call ourselves a Christian church around here because we adhere to the essentials of the historic Christian faith as proclaimed in the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. We think that that amounts to about this. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried. They didn't sneak his body away. He was resurrected from the dead and after that showed many convincing proofs that he was alive. Romans chapter 6 says that because he's alive, you and I can have a new kind of life. Did you hear that? Read it. Romans chapter 6. It's in there. It said because Christ was resurrected, you and I can have a new kind of life. Not the same old life but a new kind of life. We consider ourselves a Christian church because we adhere to the essentials of the Christian faith that the Old and New Testaments proclaim. We call ourselves a holiness church not because we think we're holier than everybody else, because we're painfully aware that we are not, but that we believe that an obvious part of being a Christ follower is a desire to be obedient to him and to please the Father Settling the issue of obedience once and for all. I say yes to God. And allowing him to do inside of us what we cannot do for ourselves, which is to change us so that we have a heart that desires to follow Jesus and his teachings. The Church of the Nazarene exists to proclaim the full message of salvation, that people can be forgiven and changed. Isn't that what we all really wanted when we got into this deal in the first place? Isn't that what we all really want? Listen, your relationship with God can be something greater than a long list of apologies. Do you get that? Your relationship with God can become something more than just a long list of I'm sorry's. Yes, of course, he will forgive you. Yes, it's the best news in the whole world. But it's not the only news. There's more news. It's that you can be changed. 
by the power of God's Holy Spirit residing within you. The good news of the gospel is forgiveness and change. Yeah. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. Don't worry about, oh no, if I get one little thing wrong, like wear the wrong perfume, he chops my limbs off and runs me out of town. Maybe not the best illustration I ever used. But this morning, I want to proclaim to you not that I am a holy man. Because if I thought that and if I said it, it would probably come across as I think I'm holier than you are. I don't, even, I don't know anything about that. I do know this. The war is over. I belong to him. Lock, stock, and barrel. And he is changing me from the inside out so that as time goes by, I'm becoming a different man. I bet by the time he's done with me, kids won't take the brunt of my anger because he'll make me like him in that area of my life. I'll bet that by the time he's done with me, some of the things that have tempted me for years just won't be all that attractive anymore because I have new desires fashioned by God himself so that I'm like him and I just want what he wants. I'll bet that over time, obedience feels less like, I'll do it, and more like, well, that's who I am and what I want anyway because he's changing me from the inside out. I'm not going to preach to you some experience um, where everything gets magically fixed because I want to believe in that. I just haven't seen it in the Bible or life. But I do know this. God takes it very seriously when any man, woman, teen, or child says, I want to be like you. Yes, I know you've forgiven me and you promise that you always will. I find great comfort in that, Lord. But I want our relationship to be something other than me saying I'm sorry every time I see you, Father. I want us to be able to have a tight connection and close fellowship that comes from our hearts being like each other. I want to be able to finish God's sentences because I'm like him. Here's what I want to ask you to do. A lot of times we do things here saying, please respect the privacy of the people around you. Let them make decisions in, in, in privacy. And um, today I'm just not going to do that. And I know this could then turn into some emotional whatever. And uh, this could turn into a show of who, you know, people making trips to the front so that other people think they're holy. Who cares? I don't, I don't care about any of that. Here's what I do feel like I need to do this morning. I need to give people an opportunity to say, that's the kind of Christianity I was hoping for all along where I can be forgiven and changed. And I'm going to ask God to do that for me. I'm going to ask him to change me so that I really do become that new life that the scriptures talk about. I'm not going to go around and brag about it and say that I am and other people aren't. I'm not going to use it to judge other people's actions. I just want God to give me a new heart. Like he said in the book Ezekiel, I'll take out your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh, one that has my will and my word written right on it. 
And if that's what you want today, um, there's no magic formula for you to pray. I'm not gonna pray some prayer for you to repeat after me. I think you and God can get this done, but I wanna open the altars right here and ask you, if you want God to do that, why don't you step out from where you are right now and come and kneel at these altars and the first couple of rows if we have to vacate them, if that's what it is that you want God to do for you today. Not because Cliff says it and he's a convincing guy, but because I just read to you from God's word paragraph after paragraph after paragraph about God saying, I have higher hopes for you. And since I have all the power in the universe, I can accomplish for you what I want for you if you want it to. So let's pray. Lord, what is it that you want to do in my heart? I'm just going to resign right now from the presidency of my life and ask you to make me a new man all the way through. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins. Thank you so very much for forgiving me of my sins. I know there's been a lot of them. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins. Lord, I don't want to become an arrogant guy. I don't want to become a guy who feels like now he has the right to look God in the eye. But I want to be a guy who's pleasing to you. I want to be a guy who's like you. I want your life in me. So I just pray that you'd come and do some more of that in me today. I've got a bunch of friends that are kneeling here asking you to do the same. Would you come, purify, sanctify, what, whatever, I, I don't care what label you paste on it. I just know that you've got all these people who are giving you their attention, who are giving you their affection, who are, are saying, God, do whatever it is that you do. Do it to me and make me different. You got a bunch of people in front of you who are tired of the war, God. They're ready to raise the white flag today and give you uncontested victory in their lives. Would you please come and answer their prayers? As we bow in your presence, Lord, we have to admit that it's rather daunting to think about being a holy person. For some of us, it's, it's a little bit frightening to think about leaving all of our favorite sins behind. Some of them are really fun. We like them a lot. But this isn't about what we want. It's about what we want more. We want, we want to be like you more than we want the pleasures of sin. So, we're letting go of those things today. Asking that your Holy Spirit take these prayers very seriously. Would you cleanse our hearts by faith? I don't, I don't much, I guess it doesn't much matter whether it's our first or 83rd prayer of this kind. We just pray that you would honor the request of these people kneeling before you today. Forgive us, cleanse us, sanctify us, make us like you. Please, Lord Jesus, if all that stuff in your word is true, come and do it for us right now.